If you don't know who I am, if you're new, uh, my name is Mike Becker. I'm actually the director of ministry here. And um, uh, in all of my years of ever preaching, I have never sat down. So this is kind of awkward, but I'm going to do it. And um, I'm really excited because what um, the job I have today is hopefully to convince you and persuade you um, to abandon whatever it is that you're looking for that would bring you joy and we're going to look at the Word of God today and see where does true joy really come from, how do we get it, and um, what are some of the pitfalls that we can find ourselves in, or what are some of the counterfeits that we end up pursuing instead of the real deal, what do we sometimes end up going towards that um, fool us and that rob us of the actual joy that we could have um, that we're going to look at today. But something happened uh, on October 18th in 2003. Um, that was very devastating for women all over this planet. Um, what happened is, I, be, I got married, <laughs> which meant I was off the market. And so every woman on the planet was so devastated because there's no hope. No hope for happiness and joy. I'm just kidding. Uh, but I did win the heart of um, one woman, my wife Carrie, and... Uh, one of the things that I was uh, not aware of at the time is actually how, uh, how much my relationship with my wife would affect every other element of my being. Uh, when we're healthy and we're good and um, everything's rolling the way it should be, everything else is kind of the same way. I enjoy my work more. I'm less stressed. I'm not desperate for uh, time away. I'm not looking for something somewhere else. I'm not, um, I'm not depressed or, or as miserable as I could be. Something within a, a, mar a marital relationship, um, it connects us at a deep level. And when those relationships um, uh, at times, within an argument or within something that's going on, it can affect us in other areas of our life. And that's, I didn't even realize how much it would affect me. And, and when, 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 we're, when we're not so good, I can feel it. Um, and if I ignore it, I end up seeking um, pleasure from a hobby or I look for something else and I just kind of push it under the rug and I just hope it'll deal with itself. It usually doesn't really pan out very well because it's still there. There's still something going on. You can still feel it. And so, but when we come back together and we resolve that, whatever it is, um, everything falls back into place for some reason. And I think, that, um, I think that's really important to understand because sometimes we're not really sure maybe, why am I feeling this way? Well, let's look at some of our relationships. Okay, so maybe you're not married in this room. As they say, maybe you're as single as a dollar bill. But I would say that you have other relationships that are very important to you. You have family, you have friends, you have coworkers, you have neighbors, you have people that um, you value a lot. And if those relationships become strained, it can affect your other aspects of life. Going into work with a strained relationship often makes work less enjoyable. Um, doing whatever you enjoy to do outside of work often becomes less enjoyable when relationships that matter to us are strained. Um, and I think, spoiler alert, uh, just to not, we're just going to ruin the whole thing right now, um, our relationship with God is infinitely more important than any of those relationships. And when that relationship is in turmoil or if that relationship is strained, 
then we find ourselves searching for other things to find that joy. And we mistakenly go after things that make us happy instead of things that bring us joy. Um, happiness is very alluring, but it's, it has a shelf life. It, it, it doesn't last very long. And also, happiness should never be mistaken for joy because happiness only comes um, due to an outside circumstance happening in our favor. It's, it's getting a good report from the doctor. Joy is something that you have even in a bad report. Joy is something you have when you, even when you get ripped off at the car dealership. <laughs> Happiness is what you have when you get a good deal. Happiness is, um, has a shelf life. So today's psalm, we've been going through the, the Songs of Ascent, and today's psalm, we're going to go backwards. Um, last week I was supposed to be preaching, but I couldn't even get out of bed last week. Uh, so uh, Jeremy um, graciously stepped in for me and um, was at uh, Psalm 127. So we're going to go backwards and we're going to go to 126. Um, if you would open that up with me, we're going to read it and we're going to try to see what does this have for us in relation to joy. So Psalm 126, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Verse 3, The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who, he who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. All right, so I'm going to give this whole thing away right now. When God restores us, it gives us true, lasting joy. When God restores us, it brings us true and lasting joy. It doesn't have a shelf life. It doesn't run out. I think there are times when we don't feel it as much. I think that there are times that we don't experience it as deeply. I think our minds are captivated by other things at times and we chase after those things. And then we end up looking for happiness instead of joy. But when God restores us, it gives us true and lasting joy. We could actually go home right now because that's the whole point of the whole thing. We're not going to because by law I have to go longer than this. But um, we could go home, but we're not going it gets, to. It gets better and it gets deeper than this. Uh, the first thing that needs mentioning, though, is that this idea of fortunes. Uh, this has nothing to do with wealth. It has nothing to do with money. It has nothing to do with fame. It has nothing to do with social status. So I want you to take any thoughts that you have of restoring fortunes as restoring our bank accounts or restoring our financial situation. I want you to rip that right out of your mind because it has nothing to do with that. Um, what we are looking at is being restored to a right relationship with God. That is what was restored. Because the Israelites at this time were, kept, were captured and were in Babylon and they were enslaved. For, for so many years that they forgot what it was like to not be slaves. They didn't even know what it would seem like to not be a slave. They were captured because of their rebellion, warned about it, and then God carried it through because their rebellion continued. And then God hears their cries and God restores them. And this restoration is what brings them their joy. This right relationship with God brings them true and lasting joy. Joy. He gave them a land of their own. 
and he made him and he made them his people. This matters a ton because it says that restoration is like a dream. So this leads us to the second thing that needs mentioning. Uh, when we think of a dream, this isn't when they mention a dream. We're not talking about a daydream, like when you sit in your office and you're like, "Man, it would be really cool if." Uh, man, I, I wish I could be better at. Wish my life looked more like. This, this is a dream that they're talking about that you have at night when you're sleeping and the impossible happens. When, when, when whatever it is going on in your dream can't actually happen in real life because it's too magnificent, it's, it's too extravagant, uh, there's no way that this would really happen. So what they're dreaming about, this, rest, this restorative state, they can't even imagine because they're, cap, they're, they're in captivity. And they've been there so long that it, it's not a daydream, it's a dream you have at night because it seems impossible. We can never get out of this. They are too powerful. Our enemy is too powerful. We are too weak. We are enslaved. We have, we have nothing for us that we can use against our enemy. We're stuck. So the only thing we can do is dream at night because to think about this during the day doesn't even make sense. So this, is, this psalmist is, this, is sharing with us that this dream seems too good to be true. It's kind of like living the dream. I like working out. I like being in shape. Before I worked out, I used to tell people round is a shape, so I'm always in a shape. Uh, doesn't mean it's a good shape, it just means it is a shape. But uh, I have a different shape in mind now that I've been um, trying to be better at how I eat and what I do with my body and, and how I work out. Um, unfortunately, my undying love for chicken wings and my habits at night in the middle of the night of snacking gets in the way of that. But, um, so don't get me wrong, desire, a desire to eat healthy and a desire to be fit isn't wrong. But, hear this, if that's what I'm dreaming about, I have sorely shortchanged myself. If all I'm dreaming about at night and during the day and what occupies the deepest part of my, my, my heart and my mind is being in shape, man, that is, that is so, so small-minded that uh, I've... I've misled myself. C.S. Lewis has this amazing quote. You've probably heard it a million times um, if you've been around Christian circles for a while. But it says this. It said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased. Some of the things we seek after are mud pies. Useless, aimless ambitions that the world says, do this because it's amazing and it's great and it makes you feel good and it gives you social status and you'll be popular among your peers and you'll make a lot of money and this and that and whatever. And our heart chases after that because it's captivated by it. It's like, wow, I want that. And then we look at other people who have it and we think they have something that is amazing. What I hope today is to persuade you, all of us, and me included, to ditch our spiritual mud pies for a holiday at sea. I want us to ditch, lay down, abandon our mud pies for a holiday at sea. Now, the psalm can be split up into two parts, so we're going to look at both parts. Um, specifically, when you see the contrast between verse 1 and 4. Verse 1 says, when the Lord restored, 
um, which is looking back to something that happened. And then it says, restore our fortunes, O Lord, in verse 4, which is basically discussing something that can continue to happen. And it kind of gives us a a model for a a prayer life for us to go to God with in order to continuously um, experience that restorative state. So let's look at the first part. This is the idea of the dream, being restored. Again, seems impossible when you're in captivity for hundreds of years. Seems impossible. All you know is enslavement. All you know is brutal treatment. Seems impossible. But this is what he says. Restoration that God brought to them, this is what it brought. Restoration results in genuine joy. Genuine joy. It says, then our mouths were filled with laughter. Think of this, filled. It's filled with laughter. When you translate this word filled, it means to be full, abundant, accomplished, and armed. I love that idea that you're armed with something. There's a weapon within it that helps us defeat and defend ourselves against something else. And when you translate the word laughter, it simply means joy. So putting these two things together, check this out. This can give us hope today. We see that the psalmist is describing abundant joy that arms ourselves against despair. Abundant joy that arms ourselves against despair. This kind of joy does not have a shelf life. It is something we can depend on. It is something we can give ourselves to. And it is something that we should enjoy because God has given it to us in our relationship with him. While this may not be the best illustration because it has some flaws in it, but I want you to think about... um, a military idea, a, a soldier going to war. And one soldier is armed to the gill. He's got, he's got um, gear on. He's got um, bulletproof vests. He's got helmets. He's got weapons. He's got grenades. He's got guns. He's got whatever. He's got a rocket launcher. Whatever he's got, he can defend himself. Then you've got another guy in cargo shorts and a t-shirt. When God restores us, he takes us from cargo shorts and a t-shirt to armed to the gill so that we can enter our world in a defensive and an an offense against what it has for us, what it wants to lure us into, what it wants to do to us, what it wants to steal from us. This joy is a defensive joy that we can use when something else tries to rob it. Filled with joy, crushing despair. It crushes despair. If you find yourself in despair, I want you to to hear this, that this joy has the potential to crush that. Here's the second thing. Um, I want you to say, I don't think we realize this. I'll be be quite honest with you. I work through some of these elements. I work through um, not feeling this joy sometimes. I work through not feeling as excited about what the gospel means. Um, And then elements of guilt that kind of stack on top of that when you're not at your game, when you're not in your best moments in life as it relates to your relationship with God. So I don't think we get this because the next thing we see is this. Restoration results in authentic praise. Genuine joy will bring us to authentic praise. Listen to this. And our tongue with shouts of joy. So this genuine joy naturally leads us to praise God with shouts of praise. Literally translated, this is so cool, proclamation and praises of triumph. It's like winning something and staring your enemy in the face going, ha, gotcha. You don't have, you, you ain't got nothing on me. 
Let me, let me explain this. This is more than mouthing lyrics in a service like this because they're on a screen in an air-conditioned room. This is a deep emotional response to who God is and what he has done for us through Christ. It's like screaming at the top of your lungs, I love you, God. This is what this is referring to. It's screaming at the top of your lungs, I love you, God, because it just comes out of you because of what you have received through this restorative act that God has done in you. It produces that from us. When I officiate weddings, um, I like to close with some final words to challenge the couple. And this is what I say um, to the bride. I say this. I say, um, make every effort to embody your strength by the way you accept your husband's approval and settle within yourself that there's nothing left to prove to him to earn his love. Let me say that again. Make every effort to embody your strength by the way you accept your husband's approval and settle within yourself that there's nothing left to prove to him to earn his love. One of the marvelous things about Christian marriage and Christians that are married is that we have this amazing opportunity to illustrate uh, the gospel at work. We have this amazing um, privilege to show the world that um, as husbands, ideally, we are showing the world that this is what it looks like to sacrifice for our bride. This is what it looks like when Christ loves us the way I love my wife, ideally should look like an imitation of how Christ loves us, which then provides our wives, our brides, our lovely brides, the opportunity to, to, to illustrate to the world that this is what it looks like to respond to, and as the word puts, submit to this love, just like we are to submit to Christ as our king. Unfortunately, obviously, we're not, as husbands, very good at loving, like Christ loves. Uh, sometimes we're, we're downright stinky at it. That also hinders our wives from giving themselves to that love because we fail and it makes it hard for them to submit to that, which is understandable. Even the word submit makes some of us cringe. Oh, submit, it's a rough term. But when husbands love their wives the way the Bible says we should, man, is that easy because they're protected and loved and cherished. Let's face it, marriage gets messy, but there's something deeply refreshing for a woman to know that no matter how rocky a marriage might get, that their husband will never leave. There is something deeply refreshing about that. And isn't that what helps us pursue God, pursue Christ, even in our worst moments? Because we know that his commitment to us is no matter how far you go, no matter how sinful you get, you can come to me and you will be restored. No matter what. He does not ditch us. He does not abandon us. He does not leave us. He is not interested in another one. We are his. And that helps us come back. That helps us come back. All that flowery language in a wedding is really our Savior on display. It's what reaches into our hearts and pulls us out. Burn this in your brain. Ready? If you write notes, this is a note. This is a note-taking time. It'll also be on the screen, I believe. We don't chase after Christ because we have to. 
but because we get to. We don't chase after Christ because we have to, but because we get to. It's a privilege to seek after Him. We have the opportunity to come to Him. Now lastly, before we get into the second part of the psalm, our genuine joy leads to authentic praise and we can't help but brag about it. So check this out. The last thing that in the first part is restoration results in bold witness. Bold witness. That word, uh, it says, Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. That word said means so much more than what we might think. It actually means to boast or act proudly. This is the the first thing that came to my mind when I started to study this. On Valentine's Day, women all over the globe are posting the pictures of their man's love poured out to them through chocolate and teddy bears with uh, holding heart pillows with cursive writing on it because cursive means love. Cursive means I love you on a teddy bear. Let me tell you right now, you want to love your wife, you give her something with cursive on it with stuffing on Valentine's Day. That's love, my friends. And there are cards and there's flowers. But what they're doing is they're boasting to the world. Look at what my husband or my boyfriend has done for me. Look at how great he is. And what these Israelites were doing when they were restored back to the right relationship with God, they were proudly boasting, look at what our God has done for us. Proudly boasting, look at what our God has done with us. That's something that happens within us in this restorative state. It's kind of like the blind guy in the Bible. People were asking him all these different questions and, and accusing him and going to his family and trying to, trying to trip, that, trip him up and say, well, what about this and what about that? And the blind guy just goes, look, all I know is I was blind and now I see. That's it. Think back to when you were first introduced to the gospel and you first turned your heart back to God. You didn't know anything other than God opened your heart. God opened your eyes. It was like you were awakened from this slumber and you could see for the first time the truth of what the gospel means. And you couldn't shut up about it. You were telling people, you're like, I don't know. All I know is I was blind and now I see. That's all I got. I don't know all the inner workings. Do you want to know something? When I go, um, if I go to an amusement park and I ride some really cool ride, some roller coaster, and I come back, I don't know how the roller coaster works. All I know is it was really stinking awesome. And I tell everyone, dude, I was on this ride. Nobody asks you, um, yeah, well, how do you, know, how do you know how it works? Do you know, how, do, how do you know this? How do you know that? I don't know. All I know is it was awesome and you should go on it. That's all I know right now. I didn't study the roller coaster. I went on it and it was awesome. Proudly boasting. All right, so this brings us to the second. So, so check this out. Genuine joy leads to authentic praise, which pushes us to proudly boast about who God is. Proudly boast. We're not ashamed. We're not even arrogant about it. We're humbled by the idea that God has graciously offered himself to us, that Jesus has graciously died in our place. The gospel becomes alive to us, that we were supposed to die a horrible death, that we deserve hell. But then God restores us and reveals to us this wonderful truth that we don't have to receive what we deserve because Jesus deceived, Jesus received it in our place. 
So remember the fortunes that God was restoring for Israel was taking them out of captivity where they were enslaved and they gave them a land of their own, um, free to worship God as he deserved. That was the big deal. He was removing them from captivity, giving them a land of their own so they could freely worship God the way he deserved. So our restorative state isn't just for us, it is for him. It is so that he can receive the worship that he deserves from us as his people. When we find ourselves not worshiping him the way we should, his restore, he wants to restore us so that he can receive the worship that he deserves. We can't make the mistake and make it all about us. In fact, it really isn't about us, it's about him. It's about him receiving from his people that which he deserves. So check this out. The second part of the psalm is something that we would pray for, something that we would seek from him uh, if we would be so bold. So the first thing is that it says that restoration is fresh. It's, a re- it's refreshing. It says, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Now, streams in the Negev is contrasting the desert of despair to a refreshing water of restoration. I mean, imagine walking around in a desert and you come upon a stream. You're dehydrated. You're thirsty. You're desperate. Boom, stream. All of a sudden, you get this new energy. You're racing towards this restorative uh, stream that's before you and you go after it and you chase after it and you soak that up. You, you just sit on your knees and you, you get as much of that goodness in you as you can because you are dying inside. So this restoration replaces the desert of, dis- of despair with the refreshing waters of new life. It's fresh. It's supposed to be fresh. Every time we go to him and every time he restores us, it's fresh. Next, restoration is deep. It is not shallow. Happiness is shallow. Happiness has a shelf life. But this restoration is deep. Deep. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is contrasting tear-soaked weeping with heartfelt joy. It's taking you from a moment of despair and bringing you into a state of joy. Water in the desert, joy after crying. Sounds pretty good, right? That sounds really stinking good. This is what our God offers us. This is why the mud pies are crap. This is why the mud pies deceive us. This is why the mud pies are so alluring because somehow we don't even think that this level of joy is possible. And so we settle for something less because it's easier to get. In fact, happiness puts us in control because it's something that we can achieve. This joy is something that we go to for God to do in us. You can't manufacture joy. You can't fake it. I also, I think it's important to say here that we're not talking about um, putting on a show. I think some Christians, unfortunately, think because you're a Christian that you can't ever be miserable. I've met some miserable Christians. I've become a miserable Christian at times. My wife would say amen. I think that it's unfortunate that we think that in our relationship with Christ, we have to put on a show for others as if we're not doing God justice by just exposing this. I'm struggling in a certain area. I'm not doing very good right now. So when I come to church, I'm going to put on a show so that everyone thinks I'm okay. When I'm at Bible study, I'm not really going to reveal what my heart is really feeling. I'm not going to talk about what's really deep inside. 
I'm going to put on a show for everybody. That's horrible. That's just, that, that, that is not helpful for our Christian walk. If there's someone that we can trust with our lives, it should be our fellow brothers and sisters. If there's definitely someone we can trust with our pain, it's our Savior. We do not need to put on a show. All right, so let's get personal. Buckle up. There's a problem. Because if we are honest right now, we oftentimes don't feel this level of joy. We're not filled with joy. Sometimes we're a miserable wreck. We don't shout praises of triumph. Sometimes we feel defeated by this world. We're not proudly boasting. Sometimes we're timid and afraid. But I want to be brutally honest with you because I love you and I want you to experience the kind of joy that God offers. Genuinely, I want you to experience it. Your biggest issue, your biggest issue is not that you're bad at behaving. It's that you're bad at beholding. You're not bad at behaving. You're bad at beholding. The primary reason that you do not experience the joy that you read about in the Bible is because your heart is divided and your interests are spread too thin. You give the same, you care about too many things at the same level that you care about the gospel at times. At times you care about some of those things more than you care about the gospel, about Jesus, about God, about scripture, about faith. We're going to bring it real down to a practical level. For some of you, your level of care for a tidy house robs you of the joy found solely in time spent resting at the feet of Jesus. If you can't rest in Christ until the house is clean, then maybe your house is actually where you're expecting to find your rest. For some of you, your level of, your, the level of unhealthy habit to consistently binge watch shows on Netflix and Hulu in order to keep up with whatever entertainment you're trying to seek. If you keep putting off time with God because you're so into being entertained, Perhaps that's what your heart wants the most, entertainment. I told you I was going to be brutally honest. It's going to get better. We just got to be brutally honest a little bit. For some of you, your genuine level of care for money and wealth and social status has caused you to put more hours into your career than your scriptures. If you keep working so much that you can't fit God into your life, then you're suffocating your relationship with Christ. I could go on and pinpoint, I'm sure, a lot of different things. However, the bottom line is this. Your heart is divided due to something other than God, capturing your attention, which has led to it attaining your affection. It started with you seeing it and wondering how great it was, and it led to you loving it a little bit too much, wanting it a little bit too deeply. That's the bad news. Told you it was going to get better and I'm not a liar most of the time. Sometimes I lie. When it benefits me, I lie. Just kidding. <laughs> Here's the good news. Christ can redeem you. Here's the good news. Christ can forgive you. Here's the good news. And most importantly, Christ can replace your idols. 
Christ can rip those things right out of your life and can expose them for what they are, useless, aimless, junk, mud pies that you're sitting around and you're molding into something you think is great. And He will give you that holiday at sea. But the first thing we have to do is admit today that we're chasing after mud pies. That some of the things that we love, we love too much. It's robbing us of who He is. Jesus can rule your heart again. Jesus can sit on the throne of your heart and rule as the king that he is. I want to give a disclaimer here because this is important because this would, be, this would be me if I was sitting where you are. I would think this because I've dealt with this. Some people suffer through bouts of legitimate depression. Then they come across a message like this and it pushes them further into the abyss of pain and misery. Instead of joy, you experience guilt. Instead of being pulled toward a loving father, the arms of a loving father, you feel pushed away by the, by the, um, dis, the disappointment of your heavenly father. Instead of feeling like he wants you to draw close, you feel like he wants you to go away. If that's you, I want to warn you against that guilt. It's unnecessary. God knows the difference between someone dealing with a chemical imbalance or struggling through a time of emotional turmoil and someone simply caught up in worldly junk. He knows the difference. So if there's something inside of you that just says, I want to love God, I want to seek God, but something that's holding me back, I, I've, I want you to know the difference between the two because it's important. But the greatest part of this is that regardless of where you are on that spectrum, if you're in Christ, you can rejoice right now. You can rejoice right now. Because His love remains forever. Your love might dry up, His does not. Your devotion might run dry, His does not. Your commitment might seem low at times because you've been duped into following something other than Him. His commitment to you will never die. You might feel like you've all but abandoned him and he is just as close to you as the moment you received him. I have oftentimes made the mistake of using the idea and even the statement, if you find yourself saying this from this moment on, I want you to uh, know it for the lie that it is. I've often told myself or said to myself when I feel at my lowest point in my spiritual life, I've said, I don't feel very close to God. I don't care how you feel. Can I be bold? I don't care how you feel. God is always close to those that have given their life to Him. He does not abandon you just because you feel like you're not close. It doesn't mean we should just do whatever we want. It doesn't mean that our sin isn't a serious issue. It just means that in those moments, just because you feel a certain way doesn't mean it has to dictate the truth of what's really happening. Because what's really happening is Jesus is just as close as he was. At this point, I would, at this, at this point if we were sitting in Starbucks and we were just having a discussion, this kind of feels like more like a discussion for me. I haven't been able to walk around and wander as much as I usually do. 
So if I was sitting in Starbucks across from you, it would get really awkward because I would grab your shoulders and I would look you straight in the eye and it would get really uncomfortable because I would want to tell you something straight to your face. I would look in your eyes and I would implore you, don't run away from Christ. Run to Him. Sprint to Him. I would look you in the eye and I would say, run to your Savior and discover that restoration. Discover that joy that is found solely and only and completely in Him. It is found nowhere else. It is discovered nowhere else. You also don't have to be a really crazy deep theologian and scour the scriptures to find some hidden gem of joy by doing this and doing this and going here and following. Just go to the source of joy. Go to the source of joy. It is the person of Jesus. He is the source of of joy. You will not find it anywhere else. I promise you. I would also beg you not to make the same mistake that Adam and Eve made. Adam and Eve, upon committing their sin of eating of the only thing in the whole garden that God asked them not to eat from, which again looked really good, fooled Eve into thinking it was amazing. It looked delicious. Remember, it looked delicious. It would give her wisdom, so she ate it. And after that, they covered themselves as if to cover their shame, as if to cover their sin. Why are we so stupid to think that we can cover ourselves? We want to cover ourselves and hide it when God says, no, 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 expose it and bring it to me. I can deal with it. In fact, I'm the only one who can deal with it the right way. I'm it. I'm your, I'm your hope. I'm the only one that can handle this. I want to close with this illustration. Imagine you're standing on a dock. This is going to be important for us. Imagine you're standing on a dock. And there's a lake. And on one side of the dock is simply a 10-foot 2 by 4 floating in the water. And you approach the person standing next to it and they are convinced that this piece of wood will help them float out. It'll keep them afloat. It'll work the way that they think it's going to work. They are confident in it. Then on the other side of the dock is a rowboat. And the guy next to it is kind of not sure. He's not really, is it going to handle my weight? Um, is it going to sink? Is, is it going to work the way I think it's going to work? And then both of them have the faith enough to get into their respective flotation devices. One steps on this wooden plank. One steps into a rowboat. Who floats? The rowboat. Why? Because the strength of your faith is not as big as the object of your faith. When you're at your low moments of your faith, the object of your faith, who is Jesus. Get this, the issue isn't the strength of your faith as much as the object. The rowboat works. The guy that was so convinced that this little piece of wood, he can be as convinced as he wants 
It's not going to work. You can be as convinced as you want that there's another way, but there's not. You can be sincere and you can be sincerely wrong. Or we can be at a low moment but still trust in the one that calls us to himself. Even in our low moments, he is still the only one. He is still the only one. Go to Christ because he is strong, not because you're strong. In fact, if you think that you're strong, there's another issue going on. There's another issue going on. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 says this, Therefore, since we have a so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us walk? Nope. Let us crawl? Nope. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Do you know what happens when you fix your eyes on Jesus? Your eyes are removed from everything else. Your eyes are removed from that which is alluring you. Your eyes are removed from that which is causing you pain. For that, you're fixing your eyes on something. And when you fix your eyes on one thing, it removes it from another. The author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We're going to respond today in song. And as we respond, I want you to rejoice and I want you to repent. I want us to repent as a people for our stupid, aimless mud pies. Ugh. It, when I think, when I think of how much time and energy and effort I put into making a mud pie, oh, and God is just like, I want to give you so much more. Would you just stop with the mud pies? I have so much more. I want to encourage you, ditch the mud pies. Abandon the mud pies. They will never bring you what the Lord has to offer you. Let's pray. God, today, I pray that we would understand and see the truth that you love us so much. You have so much in store for us. You want so much to be our God. You deserve our worship. You deserve our praise. You deserve our hearts and our minds, and our undiluted commitment. You are not interested in sharing us with something else. You are not interested in being part of our lives. You are not interested in just speaking to us in our morning devotions. You are interested in our whole life You desire to restore us to a right relationship with God, a right relationship with you.
so that we would praise your name, so that we would be armed with this genuine joy that could defeat the despair that we could find, the allurement that's going to attack us, the pain that we might suffer through. God, forgive us for the times that we chase after things that are just useless. At the same time, God, thank you for the fact that you don't give up on us even when we do. God, as we sing today, pray that we would ask you to restore us. I pray boldly, God, that you would expose our mud pies. Reveal them to us. Even if there's something that's not robbing us of our joy, what are we susceptible to? What, what are, what are, what's in our life that if we were to give too much to, we enjoy it at a healthy level now, but if we were to give too much to, could rob us of that joy. What is it? Comfort? Convenience? Entertainment? Social status? Money? deserve our praise, God. Please restore us so that we can give it to you. In Jesus' name, amen.